I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as a destruction or a permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Schrader. Greg is a core faculty member of the Arizona School of Professional Psychology, where he mentors and teaches psychology doctoral candidates. Greg also has a part-time private practice in Tempe, Arizona, where he specializes in working with those whose lives have been impacted by HIV. Greg himself came of age as a gay man in the mid-1980s, just as countless members of his community were being diagnosed with and succumbing to AIDS. Between 1987 and 2010, Greg estimates that he lost approximately 50 friends, colleagues, and clients to the disease. Greg is here today to discuss the role his own healing journey has played in helping others overcome loss. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Aria. I'd love to know a little bit about what the coming out process was like for you. Sure, sure. Um, a lot of back and forth, a lot of um, hesitation, I'd say, initially. When I was 18 and an undergrad, um, one of the first things I did was I looked for the Gay Student Union um, at my college and um, got overwhelmed and backed up and then um, tried to be heterosexual, um, and that didn't work out. And by the time I was a senior in college, uh, really figured out that this was who I was. But it wasn't something that was still um, supported or there wasn't, there wasn't um, a, a lot in the news that was positive. There were very few role models. Um, so it was, a, it was a very challenging journey of self-discovery. Who was the first person that you lost to HIV? Um, that was when I was in graduate school. And that was in the late 1980s. And um, it w I, I joined um, a swim team. It was called West Hollywood Aquatics. And that, they were my support going through grad school. And um, we were primarily gay and lesbian. And um, probably about a year or two after I was on the team, um, one of the members became ill. And we didn't see him very much anymore. And then we heard that he died. And um, then a whole series of people started to die. So he was, he was kind of the tip of the iceberg that way. When did you feel, I guess, called to pursue, pursue this professionally as a focus area for you? It was one of those things I don't know that I would have pursued. I felt like life kind of said, okay, this is what's happening. Um, um, you need to do something about it. I, I had a client, and he had um, really had a tough week, and um, he couldn't figure out why he was just suddenly having a, a bad week after he'd, he'd been progressing so well. And I said, well, just walk me back through your week and tell me what happened. And he'd been to like 15 funerals that week. But for him, that was not abnormal at that time. That was his typical week. And so I started to do some research to try and understand how he could survive so many losses consecutively, and there was very little research. 
And so that's how I came up with my research topic for my dissertation. And what did you find in your dissertation? Oh, it was, it was interesting because um, it was such an unusual experience. A lot of the literature had talked about, um, you know, mass casualties in um, tragedies or uh, natural disasters, things like that, fires. Um, but nothing was, was like this where one of my clients later on said it was like the Titanic with one person going down at a time. Um, and so what I found was that there was a lot of resiliency there. Um, there was a lot of humor, which was great. Um, and the, the federal government, um, wasn't doing much of anything in those days. So the whole community came together, including the, the lesbian community. And I think they, they were often the, um, unnamed heroes of, uh, HIV because they really cared for a lot of the gay men who were dying. Uh, but we, we really did come together as a community and, and um, supported each other and um, help educate each other. Um, and um, as I'm talking about this, I just have to let you know about my own process, which is that um, it gets, once I get triggered emotionally, it's a little harder to, to talk about all this. Um, and so it's, it's, even though I've gotten some more emotional distance from it, it still, it stirs it all back up for me. Had you ever experienced loss before this period in your life, personally? Well, it's really interesting. And trying to get greater perspective on all of this um, with some time, with some distance, um, I was in a play. It was called The Shadow Box um, right after I graduated high school. And it was about three different families who were in um, hospice care. And it had won a Tony and a Pulitzer Prize in um, it was, it's, it was really beautifully written and the, the central characters, there were three different families and the central characters were a, a gay couple. So it, it made me aware of the issues, um, in lost grief and bereavement. And that spurred my interest in taking a class as an undergrad. Um, there was, a, there was a wait list to take this class. And so I thought, Hmm, I, 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 my grandparents were aging at the time and I thought, well, this, I should be prepared for this somehow. Um, I, I had lost my grandfather when I was seven, um, and um, both of my grandparents had died on my father's side um, right around the time I was a senior in, in, in high school, too. So those kinds of expected losses had begun to occur, but none of the losses of people my own age. And as such a young person, how do you make sense of losing so many other young healthy people before that, I imagine. You know, that's where HIV was such, and still can be, um, such a, a horrible disease because um, gay men in particular work very hard to be very attractive and they have nice bodies. And um, this disease could cause carpisarcoma, which were the um, uh, kind of purplish welts that would appear on people's faces and they'd have AIDS wasting syndrome and overnight it, it made them old men in a lot of ways and um, to be in young adulthood and trying to get my life going and uh, falling in love for the first time and um, really being okay with my identity and sort of finding my community um, it was incredibly hard and um, it didn't make any sense at all and um, you know, as young people, we're not, our, our brains aren't even done developing until we're in our mid-20s. So to try and understand it all, um, 
it was very overwhelming, incredibly overwhelming. And speaking to that, that really like it hit you at this critical stage in development. I mean, it, I imagine that time period, like it is for so many of us, is a, a huge part of who you are now today. It's it's interesting as I was thinking about this uh, this podcast. I part of me wonders who I would have been if not for HIV and AIDS, um, and it's it's impossible to separate out from my development. Um, you know, I mainly just feel very lucky to be here to talk about it because so many others haven't. Um, but um, at a time when many of my peers, my heterosexual peers, were starting families and having children, um, to be dealing with and seeing death um, so up close made me feel, um, and I think for many of my generation, just more disconnected from the mainstream in so many ways. So it was... It made you more isolated from? Unfortunately, yeah. At, at a time, again, when when I just really found my community, I'd really connected for the first time. Um, yeah, which made, which made it so much more difficult. Your personal understanding of grief and loss and then your professional understanding of grief, grief and loss, how do those how do those commingle? And I guess more specifically, I'm just thinking as you're talking about what are what are commonalities about the, the grief and loss that you experienced as a gay man, um, having lost so many people who, who were HIV positive? Um, what are the pieces of that that may be specific to that experience? And what are, I guess, the commonalities um, for, for those out there who have lost anybody? I, th I think that many of the, the emotional processes that people go through are, are, are very similar um, in terms of trying to understand, um, trying to cope, um, trying to um, find um, any kind of answer that, that, that one can find um, to make sense of loss. Um, those are those are very similar, but to have these kinds of losses that were cumulative and um, uh, consistent um, and occurring um, with no break, really no time to mourn someone one at a time, uh, that that part seemed unique. Um, um, and so, so people who have lost people in tragic events or. Um, other kinds of situations where they're having to grieve more than one person at a time uh, makes it, it really compounds the difficulties of getting through the losses and getting through the grief. Grief, a, a singular loss, um, especially with someone who's very close to you, can be a completely disorienting life experience. Um, but to have those kinds of losses piling up all the time um, makes it much more challenging. Well, I would think to get to get through like the trauma involved in all that, one would sort of need to to disconnect a, a bit from the reality of how profound each one of those losses is. It 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 was interesting because um, the way that I one of the ways I found my way through it was to really focus on prevention. Um, at the time, before nineteen ninety five, in particular, before we had the the antiretroviral medications. Um, people were literally dying overnight. And so um, I thought, well, what is it that I can do about this disease? And so 
Um, uh, the APA, the American Psych Psychological Association, created um, their HIV Office for Psychology Education, HOPE, and we trained other mental health professionals on how to work with people with HIV. Um, and I, I, I co-taught a class at ASU for many years um, called HIV and AIDS in America, again, trying to prevent people from becoming infected um, with the disease. And then I also worked with another program um, called Man-to-Man uh, -Man Sexual Health Seminars for about seven and a half years, um, trying to help people with HIV uh, not get reinfected and to help other people from becoming infected. And that, that was one way the professional and the personal overlapped and, and did help me. Um, and, and I could also share my experience too with other people um, so they wouldn't feel so isolated and alone as well. Turning to the to the medical realm, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how um, modern medical protocols have prolonged the lives of those who are HIV positive. Sure, um, it's 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 amazing to see. I mean, again, with with some perspective, we look at the early 20th century and we had the flu epidemic that wiped out millions of people. At the end of the 20th century, we have HIV and AIDS, which has wiped out so many people. Um, so um, HIV and AIDS medically has helped us understand viruses much better and how to treat them. Um, and a lot of the medications that are out there now treat the secondary infections that people can have with HIV. Uh, people would get pneumocystis pneumonia and that was the thing that would kill them so quickly. And so we, we had medication for that. Um, now we have uh, uh, the antiretroviral medications, which again uh, start to attack the virus. So it's really helped um, prolong life for people. Um, it's still not something that anyone wants to get, you know, and certainly um, all the medicine and all the costs, um, it reinforces the need for universal health care. Um, and um, we have now a preventative uh, prep medication too, which helps in terms of not acquiring the virus, which is good too, but we don't have a cure and we don't have um, a hundred percent effective way of, of preventing the disease. Um, but education and prevention are the still, still the two tools that I wish um, we were using a lot more of. So medicine helps us to a certain extent, but behavioral health, I think, needs to work with integrated health care in that way in helping prevent people from acquiring the disease or other diseases as well. That's where I hope our field also can join with, with uh, the medical side of the house a lot more in the future. And what would that look like? Um, that you would have uh, MDs who would recognize patterns of behavior that are destructive or risky and would make a referral to go see the psychologist next door. Um, the psychologist next door can uh, work collaboratively with the psychiatrist. Um, so we all have our specialties, but uh, as human beings, we're integrated and holistic. So having a much more holistic approach makes sense to me. In terms of your own life and given the extent of loss you've experienced and been a part of, how does that inform the way you think about your own death? I'd say it informs me about life, first of all. Um, to not take anything for granted, um, to, certainly not to take my health for granted. Um, try very, trying very hard to 
friend of mine said, when you hit 50, it all goes downhill. And that's been my experience. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, trying to stay in shape and, and uh, eat well and um, take care of my stress, um, all those things. And all my relationships with, with people in my life, um, I value just so much more. I don't, I really don't take much for granted. Um, I, I certainly don't fear death. I really, um, have gotten, I feel like I've gotten to know death a lot more and, um, it's not something scary. It's, it doesn't loom over me in the Southwest. We have, uh, Dia de los Muertos from Mexico and we celebrate that every year at my school. And it's, it's a nice time to remember, uh, the people that I've lost, um, and to share them with, with, uh, my students and with my colleagues. Um, so, um, I guess it's it's really informed my life. What I've what I've also found to be helpful um, in my last grief and bereavement class, we look at different cultural um, ways that um, uh, people handle death and loss, and it's fascinating to see the the cultural responses again, like in Mexico, where it's embraced and and death is seen as very much a part of life. Um, to um, people grappling with the spiritual dimensions of death and loss, um, like reincarnation in, in Tibet. And um, I think it's helpful to step out of our culture's denial of death in order to get a greater perspective in terms of being human and being on the planet that, that we don't um, by any means have all the information um, available within our culture. Um, and seeing those other perspectives gives us perspective um, as well. So I think that's very helpful. That is very helpful. And as you're talking, I'm wondering, are there, have other cultures handled HIV in different ways than ours has? Oh, that could be a whole other potential podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly we've seen pockets of compassion um, and much more proactive responses than our culture provided. Um, and um, that's good to know. It's good to know that homophobia is not the rule around the world and that um, fear and ignorance aren't what drive most people's responses, that people can be compassionate and have open hearts and minds um, and not get absor absorbed in their fear. And I think that's one of the, the biggest lessons too is is to not let fear stop us. I'm just trying to wrap my head around some of the things you said about like the the multiple losses, but happening one at a time. Um, and the metaphor you used about the Titanic was actually helpful and eliciting a reaction for me because I just was was thinking about from a trauma perspective how much of that stays with one over time and what what's to be done about that if anything it's it's um i can only share my my, my experience in that regard um th there were times when it was so relentless i'd have you know a client who just found out that, that they were positive and i'd have a good friend in the hospital and i'd have uh, someone's funeral that week um and so it was so unremitting for probably about 15 years of my life that um, that the grief felt like that's who I was. And um, I would kind of grieve groups of people or chunks of people. 
um, at a time. Um, or um, the interesting thing about my grief uh, and loss process is that whenever I would have a new loss, it's like the loss that occurred right before then was the one that then I was available to grieve. Um, the current loss I still wasn't, wasn't able to fully process, but the one right before I was then able to work through. Um, and then as the new medications came out um, and things slowed down, um, the grief very gradually went away, the intensity of it, the, the uh, all-consuming aspect of it lifted. And it was so it was interesting to feel um, in my late 40s and early 50s to feel younger than I felt in my 30s and 40s because of, of uh, so much loss. Um, it still will bite me every now and then, and I've 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 felt more myself for a longer period of time that um, it will surprise me occasionally. It will come up and you know tap me on the shoulder or kick me in the butt, um, and I'd say it's good in that way that I've I've got the distance, but it 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 will never fully go away, and it I, it shouldn't. You know, it it will always inform my life and what I've been through. And, um, like I said, carrying, um, carrying my friends forward with me. How are people in your life who are heterosexual or who haven't been impacted by HIV in any way, how are they, how, how can they be helpful to you and how can they be the opposite of that? It's, it's a good question. You know, initially when I came out, it was not something that many people were doing. Um, a lot of guys my age um, got married and had, had heterosexual families. And um, um, only now I'd say, you know, with 20, 30 years removed from that, um, some people are beginning to find me on social media or things like that and, and come back into my life. and. It's nice. It's um, it's nice to reconnect, um, and I don't know if people are aware. I don't know that they ask. I don't know that they think about it. Um, um, some people might avoid it. I think acknowledging, being able to acknowledge um, the importance of our relationships and um, what we went through, and the the memories of the people that we lost. Um, is a really good place to start. Rather than having it be this elephant in the room that other people are dancing around in some way. Right, or not acknowledging at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty big thing to not acknowledge, and yet and yet, I, I can imagine that that would very much be, that there'd be, the, that people would think either the onus is on you to bring it up if you want to talk about it, and maybe hoping that you don't, and if you don't, that there's a cooperation to just avoid that subject altogether. Pretty much so. You know, it's it's. I also teach a class in human sexuality, which helps balance out the loss class that I teach. And um, we're not comfortable talking about sexuality, and we're not comfortable talking about death. So um, it's just easier to to not talk about it at all. But that's why I appreciate things like the podcast that you're doing, um, and that's why I. Um, also, I'm a big advocate for sexual health and sexual health education, 
which is also under threat right now. I feel like I've learned more and more that that people do actually want to talk about this stuff and just don't don't know how and then and and then kind of feel like they're going to have a big, you know, scarlet letter if they broach the subject. Existentialism and our, our purpose on the planet and the mystery of death and the mystery of sexuality. You know, those are, are two of the more wondrous subjects of human existence. And I love talking about them. I love exploring them. I love uh, delving into possibility. And um, I, there's some very interesting conversations and some very important conversations to be had. And people don't have to be afraid of those topics. They are who we are. None of us would be here if someone hadn't had sex. All of us are at some point not going to be here. Um, those are important topics to bring up. Um, it may, may be some of the most important to- important topics we have in our lives. Well, and I feel like there's an undercurrent of something will be either lost or we will make something horrible happen by speaking it. Like if we talk about death, you know, then yeah. some, something awful is going to happen. If we talk about sex, then, you know, our young child who we're not ready to deal with the subject is going to act out. And I mean, people have all sorts of catastrophic fantasies around speaking things. They do. Uh, But yet modeling that, I mean, I feel is very invited. In other words, I can imagine that your students really appreciate your, your comfort with communicating with them about things that probably a lot of people haven't. Well, and again, as, as psychologists, there was a study that came out, I think in the mid-90s, that was talking about um, people discussing sexual health issues with their physicians and finding that their physicians weren't talking to them. So particularly as therapists and psychologists, we may be the only people that people have in their lives to bring up these subjects with. And so we need to start the conversation early with students so students have some comfort in being able to um, – be the ones to facilitate these these dialogues. I've really enjoyed being able to talk with you today, Greg. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Dr. Greg Schrader, so appreciate your time. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Alfont, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you could take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting.
You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.